Hello, dear friends. Welcome to Alley Audio Vision, a series of talks with Alaska architect Ralph Alley. I am Clark Yarrington, Frame Residential Design, Anchorage, Alaska. In this episode, Ralph gets better acquainted with the fledgling city of Anchorage and its prime movers. Of course it's cold. That's the least of anything. Over a number of blocks, starting from a linoleum-floored boarding house, my walk transforms to high art and dance on the way to a new job. A rising sun strums astonishing sights as visual music. Pile drivers pound at the icy-watered port, providing primal rhythms. Beats echo bangs off white walls of mountains, doing zigs then zags as rims for a vast bright sky. Unmired zeal is set free. A single moment. Maximus as expectation, excitement, and knowing synchronize into a sense of future, one of destiny advancing. No clue what that might be other than keep on dancing. And it does keep on. Through a building's fluted concrete portal, up one flight of stairs, down where the hall bends right, my turn left crashes headlong into words from the willies of an architect's office. The spell ends, a career begins. You must be the new boy. Boy heralds an unwanted bondage restrained within an overhead space of slick-looking paneled walls and catalog cubbies made fouler by a stench of printing machine ammonia. A flickering fluorescent pathway lights table placement and counterlinks with paper-piled disorder. A line of workstations is against a row of metal windows. Curtains in disarray leave uneven glass shapes for viewing the west sky, limiting any visual escape from indoor confinement and plotting tasks. Out there, outdoors, is Alaska's magic. Puget Sound and the Olympics were visual rewards from 17 floors up in the last downtown Seattle office. Their Bassetti critique design in Harvard-esque straightforward or ponderous. Coming north took a six-hour propeller droning flight. Here the view from the second floor is Anchorage's D Street. Mayer sizes up design as having too much or too little higgledy-piggledy. Maintains every room needs a little black and wants all work done hucklety buck. When little, being told to, a couple visited our home in long black coats towed by a black Scotty dog on a leash, brought gifts and stories from out Alaska. By mid-teens, ivory pieces in their retold tales of gold, towering mountains and snow stuck around, as did a growing fascination for the North. College instilled passion for form to build mere topping over an inner push to get on with doing and hurry. Up here my wait for a sign, a one chance, creeps as daily work presses on. Every direction my sky watch has from this spot astonishes. In days, sun twirls daylight about into swift dizzying angles. Well, that, Clark, is like my first day in Anchorage. And one thing that happened in days afterwards was that that sun kept astounding me the way it kept changing daily. And when I did get up into the Arctic, it changes daily like 15-minute gallops at a time. It is an amazing phenomena once you get into how that sun moves around Alaska.
think the way that you've written about that is pretty spot on, and that's uh, a lot of people um, who haven't been to Alaska or aren't too familiar with it. When they want to hear about it, they want to hear about snow and ice and cold and uh, winter <laughs> yes. weather and things like that. And it's really about the light conditions that are unique to the location. We have interactive television down here, and occasionally I get homesick for Anchorage. And there's a lot of people who have done these uh, iPhone YouTube dissertations, and they hold their arms out showing their faces and showing different aspects of Anchorage. And they always are talking about the sunlight. And they say, well, in the wintertime, it's dark all the time. And in the summertime, it's light all the time. And never talking about the transitions. And the transitions are what makes Alaska so spectacular, I think. Yeah, it's considerably more nuanced than that. Maybe they just haven't been here long enough to really appreciate it. Or maybe they just um, don't observe things in the same way. Now, I found that creative people like um, really see something in the way that normal people, it just uh, escapes their grasp. The thing that is irritating is that people see this on YouTube and it seems like YouTube is their lead-in to all kinds of things that go on in the world and I really resent Alaska being depicted that way. And hopefully that one of these days that maybe my book will be out there and uh, people can get a sense of what Alaska really does for the people who live there and what the people who live there do to Alaska, which is basically what the book is about. Yeah, well, YouTube and um, and Instagram and Facebook and all the others have uh, screwed up the image of Alaska, but that's uh, that's not the only thing that they've uh, messed with. No, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just having this one little workstation against a west window looking out on D Street was quite an experience because it seemed like at that time the people who were doing things would come to that office. Uh, Manly Mayor was a fairly large office then. Crittenden was a real competition, but Manly had been up there for years and had done considerable work that was fairly monumental, and I think one was West High School, which was built somewhat as a community center with that wonderful 2,000-foot auditorium and that stage with a full fly space and hydraulic lifts under the stage and orchestras could be lifted and depressed. It was just an amazing facility for a place like Anchorage when I moved up there. And it still is a pretty good hall. It's great acoustically and um, sight lines and a lot of other ways, you know. It's uh, it's aged very yes. well. They spent some money on renovating it about uh, 10, 15 years ago. I think that that would be one of the first places that I would like to see when I do make a trip back up there in my late life because I did a lot of productions at West High, both as a performer and staging. And I'm so familiar with that auditorium, almost every aspect of it. But getting back to just sitting in that strange office with a big aisle that goes from front to back and the ammonia smells and the fluorescent lights, one of the very first days I was there, I was at drafting, and it was right before lunch hour. And there is a chapter 
And I, I don't know, you do such a good job reading sections out of my book. I really love listening because I get tired of my own mind thinking of these things. But there's a chapter in here called First Days, Future Days. I'm not quite sure the page number at the moment, but uh, I would love for you to read some of it, if not all of it, uh, Clark. I'll give it a shot. Thank you again for um, your confidence in my reading ability, and hopefully I don't totally flub it. You don't. (laughs) First days, future days. Overwrite an emerging crimson transforms the room as my plan file's top tray is opened. In the room's broad aisle, six men stand about three felt-lined sides to what now looks like a gambling table. (laughs) Two have on overcoats with brimless fur hats, like pictures of Russians. Another is in an overcoat with muffler, hatless, but dark, slick-combed hair. Two others just shirts and ties. Tallest and fanciest has a hair seal parka with matching hat. Ham, office associate, slips in the room-length space and greets them. Ten minutes before noon, Manley comes in, buttoned in a long gray tweed coat with white scarf ready for outside cold. The hair seal parka and hat guy rivets my attention when he pulls off fur-lined gloves, revealing a jade and gold nugget ring that reflect his dazzling wristwatch design. The men shake dice for firsties. Once decided, each possible payee takes a dice shaking turn. The final count for who shook and rolled what brings what brings shouts. The new crowned pawn is hauled from the office toward free lunch for everyone else. The door out front shuts and there's immediate quiet, then opens right after. Heavy steps. Mayor bounds in, face red from outside cold. One brisk motion unsnaps his canvas parka, but the aviator cap remains. Flaps over ears accentuate that thick mustache, round face, and large brown eyes. Gold tooth fillers shine as he asks, Who gets to pony up for lunch? Just saw the guys leaving the building. Doc Hines comes from a voice in back. Pumped by my own curiosity, who are those guys? Mayor tightens his pipe-smoking sideways lips toward a smile that isn't. Well, two in shirts you've probably seen here in the building. The tall, leaner one is accountant Tom Walker. Heavier one is Dave Thorsness, a lawyer. Locke Jacobs, in the ridged fur hat, is a wheeler-dealer friend of Ham's. They're always into stuff. Ken Shepard, older, white-haired guy, is a friend of Bill's and has a concrete plant. Ned Griffin is the dark-haired pretty boy, partner in the Knick Apartments with Manley and Doc Hines. Doc is that fancy seal get-up guy. He's a client, too. We're drawing up a clinic for him down on 9th. You'll see a lot of those guys here. Seeing all that jade forces my asking, is Hines a physician? Doc Hines is an optometrist, but different kind of duck. He spends summers on a Puget Sound island he owns in the San Juans called Blakely. I hear it rains there and never quits. Crazy. Summer is best in Alaska. Everyone knows that. Can you imagine? Now he's buying up worthless property just east of town here, clear to the Chugach. I've heard he's buying up in the hills. Even our mountains aren't safe around that guy. Obvious mayor's blood pressure climbs. Why you want to know about him? My dad was called Doc. He was an M.D. Hines stood out. That's all. Uh, He seemed to resent somebody buying up land, uh, mayor. He was an interesting partner to Manley, who was very gentlemanly, and Mayer in every way seemed to be the opposite. However, Mayer was 
usually pretty nice to me as well. I can remember one time he took me over to show me his house. There were some things he wanted me to look at. We were sitting there and he had a dog. And he said, have you ever seen a dog sing or ever hear a dog do duets when a person sings? And I said, no, I haven't. So Mayer started singing and the dog started singing with him. It was kind of an amazing thing. And I will never forget that. It was pretty touching in a way that someone who had the pretense of being Mr. Bush Pilot Masculine Mayor, Francis Mayer, would uh, do something like that. I'm not even sure if I had a dog that sang along with me, I'd let people see me do it. Most of them only sing, sing along to police sirens and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he was uh, just such an interesting uh, person to me, and I keep using that word interesting. I'm trying not to, but uh, the shoe fits. he did. Yeah, right. I, it wasn't too soon after I uh, went out. This kind of backtracks a little bit, but uh, Mayor or Manley had called me in to do Gloria. Well, it was Britt's house, I guess, out in Airport Heights. And uh, I had gone out to meet with her, and she had received this invitation. And it was as if I had disappeared. She didn't even know I existed, and she was so ecstatic over receiving an invitation in Anchorage. And I'd never quite seen anyone do anything, act as excited as she was over a piece of paper. But anyway, Chuck, who was the other office associate, he, a uh, day after that, and it was probably the first kind of warmish spring day, and he just came by uh, where I was working. He says, Ralph, let, I'm going to take you out to lunch. He said, uh, it's the first light coat day. He says, let's get out there on the street and have a nice walk we need out of the office. And he says, it clears the air and gets the cobwebs out of our brains. So uh, he didn't have to add all of that because food is always an ample enticement for me <laughs> because I was always hungry. Uh, but we walked down the uh, north side of 4th Avenue uh, west. We walked by all these restaurants, and I noticed in one of your photographs, I forgot all about the Highland Fling uh, being over there, which was a good place to eat. But we also passed the Hofbrau, and he saw me kind of sitting there longingly looking at those roasts rotating under the infrared. And he says, come on, Ralph, further on up, further on up the street. And I said, well, where are we going? I I ask him if uh, it was going to be that oyster loaf across from the post office. And he said, no, not there. And he says, come on, just don't ask him more. We're going up beyond the 4th and Empress Theaters. He said, beyond the Northern Commercial. And I said, not the Milky Way across uh, by the newspaper buildings. And no, ick. He says, if I pay for eating out, he says, I want people to wait upon me hand and foot. And I said, okay, so... We kept going and more blocks and on the other side of the street was a white clabbered building. It's two-story with a red roof and a turret and had a lot of Victorian gym cracks all over it. And it was Club 25, which the city is looks at as a historical building. But that was where it was when I first went up there. And it was, I think, pretty much removed once the third tower went in 
at the uh, Captain Cook. It hung on for a little while longer after that. I'm familiar with that story a little bit. In 1983, I think it was, they finally, the owners of the Captain Cook wanted to get rid of the building for a long time, and the, the longtime owner um, and the restaurant proprietor that you're going to talk about, I think, she finally like agreed to uh, sell it to them. That was Myrtle Stalnaker. Right, Myrtle Stalnaker. They brokered a deal where um, the building would be moved, and it was moved in 1983 to where it currently sits in a similar position at uh, uh, 4th and D Street. So you could have, um, you know, seen it out your old office windows, I guess. And now it's used as the. Uh, it's a little further down. I no, think. it's a it's on Fourth and D Street for sure. Yeah, it and it's okay. a right. it's used as the these days as the uh, headquarters for the uh, fur rendezvous. Oh, that'd be a great building for it. I think they have a little statue of um, the dog uh, Balto out outside the door to it. Well, why we're right here before we go in. Uh, Chuck Kendall and I go in and eat. Why don't we stop? Is it about time? Yes. Um, We'll take a little break here and uh, be back in a moment and uh, back to is Alley Audio Vision, dear friends, coming to you from Anchorage, Alaska, vintage 1962, Clark Yarrington here in 2020. Ralph learns about big fish-itis in the next segment, gets underwhelmed exploring Turnigan by the Sea, and laments about the Cobb job, an Anchorage institution. Hello again. Well, just before that break, we were speaking about a lunch trip. You were being taken down uh, the length of 4th Avenue to the west to Destination Unknown, but it, you ended up at Club 25. That was a cool place to eat. I remember going there with my dad in the uh, 70s, you know. There used to be so many places in Anchorage that had these sort of really colorful proprietors. That was an experience that uh, you don't often get these days. I have lived many places and. Anchorage was phenomenal having good eating places. And it could have been because of the, it was a kind of a crossroads for international flights, uh, even after the jets came in. But prior to that, it was a, a major gas refueling station for world travel. And a lot of people stuck around. Um, a lot of them were chefs, uh, mountain climbers, skiers. Uh, it had kind of an international flair, and I can't forget about the artisans, the construction people. I, I had several people from uh, Northern Europe who were just excellent, excellent builders on projects that I designed. But back to Club 25, uh, we did cross the street over to there and uh, came into this side waiting room, and there were these 
the louver doors and I could hear this shrill female voice just coming all over the place from the dining space and she just the voice was shrill and just filled the air and there was all the restaurant noise all the dishes banging and clanging and stuff but she just dominated and Myrtle the large blonde she was not a lightweight lady a uh, trim in any way but she came through the painted barroom doors and uh, she called Chuck by his name and he called her Myrtle and we walked into what probably was once a living room and she seated us at this uh, these little tables they were not very wide for two people and uh, over by the window there were some tables pushed together and there were eight ladies um, sitting there listening to this woman talking and it was non-stop dissertation it just went on and on and on if you remember those windows were lace curtained <laughs> it was yeah. that kind of a tea room look i do remember, do you remember that. that and myrtle was i think um either the she was maybe the daughter of the guy who built the building in 1915 it was a family business and i think she even had a sister there mm-hmm. um and it was a grocery store when it was new. There's a historical photo of it. I'll put that in the um, blog post for this episode that shows it had a big um, window in the front, and it was a grocery store. It was like Wendler and somebody uh, groceries. And I guess it was only a grocery store for a couple of years, and then it was used uh, for storage for a while. But it remained under uh, family ownership for all those, you know, seven decades plus. And I think they lived on the second floor. Yes, and I think there was also a son or a uh, a young adult male was there around, did things for them all the time, but was a member of the family. Yeah, I remember when they renovated that building, probably at the time where they moved it down uh, a few blocks to D Street there and went through the, and, um, you know, the walls had no insulation and the electrical wiring <laughs> yes. was knob and tube and <laughs> all this crazy stuff. It's a wonder it survived all that. Did they uh, refurbish it or update it or yes. in order to? Yeah. yeah. It looks pretty good now, you know. It it uh, it's it's just in kind of a bad area, you know. I mean, it's only like seven blocks different, but it's uh, you start to get to the to the bad end of fourth, you know, by then. Yeah, down where real life is, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when Chuck and I were sitting there, he, uh, I couldn't get that voice out of my ears. She just took over that whole space, and you know, it was several rooms. It was kind of a meander of rooms, but she just dominated. Yeah, she, and, she uh, was like directing a show almost, like like barking out orders to the kitchen and uh, conversing with people. And, you know, <laughs> I remember oh that too. Oh, my gosh. So amazing. Anyway, I, Chuck was sitting there and I said, and, you know, I, I was a neophyte there in Anchorage. And I said, any idea what that's about? He just started grinning from ear to ear. And he said, sure do. That's our town's own queen of arts he says and i said okay <laughs> over which arts does she preside and he says she claims to have brought culture to anchorage i said well do i need to get a vaccination or something and he, he, look at those women sitting there they're just helpless and they're just sitting there listening to all of that i want to land and he says, Ralph, this exemplifies a truth in an isolated place like Alaska. And that truth is, and he just really made a big deal out of this, big fish-itis. He says, people, whether they're worthy or not, can just come up here and they can 
become a really big fish in this little tiny small pond and they all play themselves bigger than they are and he just went on and on with this. He says that at times they drown in personal delusion and uh, they usually talk a lot, say more than do. They put themselves in finding levels to wield dubious power and then guard, imagine their pinnacles, their place in the community and by engaging in endless king of the mountain battles. And I listened to this and I, he was sitting there just gloating over saying all of this stuff to me. And I was trying to take it all in and he had, they served him some hot coffee and he was just taking this long sip and he was gloating. And I says, well, in that case, who in the hell are the Atwoods? <laughs> he started choking and he couldn't even talk. He was try to keep everything from coming all, out all over the floor and the carpets and everything. And, and he kept waving his hand in the air and, and just say, don't like, don't ever talk to me again or just don't say anything, just don't. And he was sitting there just making a fool of his own self there. And anyway, he finally choked out, stop, don't say anything. So I didn't say anything more. And uh, that place was so rocked raucous all the time though you know nobody would probably notice that he was making a fool of himself right <laughs> yes <laughs> it just sort of blend into uh, the background noise so anyway when the things calmed down he looked at me and says where did you hear in the hell about them and i told him the story about going to to brits about the wedding invitation that they received and once she got that i was just wasn't even there I was part of the woodwork, and he said to me that the Atwoods are the quintessential big fish, and uh, he says uh, they're not the big fish itis specimens as pretenders are. He says they are authentic, and he went on and on. He said that uh, if they lived in the States, they'd probably be less conspicuous than they are up here. Anyway, I said, okay, who are they? And he says, if a d dynasty thrives, thrives in Alaska, it'd be them. And uh, he says, Evangelines, forebears, or missionaries. He went into their story about how they got into uh, the awakening of Alaska and fishing and canning and timber and gold and, and land ownership and investments. And he told me about Bob Atwood, who was uh, the editor of the Anchorage Times. And I learned about that. And the newspaper was just down the street. And the Milky Way that I talked about, that little hole in the wall was uh, on the corner there and that he that they owned the westward hotel and they just went through all of this stuff here and he said the atwoods are the epicenter of all things social in anchorage if not the entire territory then he corrected himself you know i gotta start calling this place a state he says it's been a territory for so long but he did say that they were philanthropic and he said that they rule over a hop to it crowd and People are always trying to keep in good standing with him so that they keep the invitations coming. And he just went on and on with that. And a lot of people in the Anchorage kind of derive self-worth from um, dealing with them. And, and uh, he did kind of continue on about Evangeline, that she was kind of a character that people always talk about her, says her parties are always written up. And they said, of course, they own the paper. And... Uh, he said that uh, anecdotes uh, abound about her, about all her facelifts and wearing too much eyeshadow and plenty of diamonds and walking around through snow and high heels and lace hose. And he just went on and on about her. Then he 
added up, says Evangeline's brother uh, was named Elmer Rasmussen, and he owns the National Bank of Alaska. Well, my curiosity there, Clark, was where do they live? I want to see their house. <laughs> and, and, and let me guess, you were a little overwhelmed or underwhelmed <laughs> when you got there, right? <laughs> how did you know? Well, you know, I was, I've been going to say, and I'm trying to figure out how to, how to frame the comment exactly, but for all of its, um, um, you know, having like a, a, a social strata like that and, you know, classes of people, it's, uh, it, it still is pretty, um, a, a pretty flattened pyramid, you know? <laughs> it's like you can, com- you can commonly like um, run into your senator or governor or mayor or whatever when you're out and about and uh, at the grocery store in the produce section or something. And uh, I can't imagine something like that happening in any other place except here. And it's still like that. And I think that, uh, you know, in, in some ways there's a, a remarkable lack of uh, pretension like that. And there's good uh, access. So, it's a, and, and it sort of stayed that way. And because Anchorage is um, compact, except for the hillside, a lot of home sites are sort of small, you know, and the houses are modest. And um, it's just, it, it's kind of charming that way. And there's more to it than that, but, you know. <laughs> well, I didn't have a car then. I had ordered a Corvair, which Chuck didn't like. He turned his nose up, but of course, no one had ever owned one before. <laughs> It was a brand new automobile, so I'm not quite sure where he was basing his opinion, but uh, I told him as soon as I got that car, I was going to drive out, and I asked where it was, and he says, well, it's a place called Turnigan-by-the-Sea. He says there's a bunch of homes, big homes, that, that look out over the inlet out there, and I said, well, how do you get there? And he said, well, he says all the major homes start down here in Bootlegger Cove, which is right on the water just west of us here. And they, they go south over there towards the Westchester Flats. And he says there's homes up on Romig Hill on the way out there where a lot of people live. And, and then he says, if you go on further out to Northern Lights and go west, he says, it's out there. And uh, he says a guy named Mucktuck and Brooke Marston, his son, started that place. He said that there is a boulevard out there called Turnigan West that have several larger homes on it side by side. And he says, uh, one is uh, Heinz's, who's uh, we talked about in the office, and he says the other one is Evangeline, and next door is uh, Elmer's, Rasmussen's house. And uh, I said, well, since I get a car, I'm going to go out and check that out. Just as you said, <laughs> I did. <laughs> and just as you said, I I was somewhat surprised that, uh, that they were like they were, because they were kind of glorified builder houses, in my own opinion. They didn't even put sidewalks in that neighborhood, which is just incredible <laughs> yeah. to me. Well, anyway, I told him that as soon as I got the car, I'd go out there. And uh, we had to just make a quick walk back to the office because we had been there for longer than either one of us thought we'd be there. But once I did get the car and started really driving around, just kind of studying Anchorage, of course, I was concerned about some of the newer buildings I that were just being built. And I really hadn't had that much exposure out other than going out to the mountains and coming back at, in the evening time looking for, it, for when I was doing houses up there. And, but I started to kind of expanding around and I was surprised at seeing so much of this. I guess it's like an Anchorage prototype. It's a concrete block, not a very large 
commercial building, but had, uh, I guess Conair was the main one at that time, but they were like aluminum window walls and panels on the front. They seemed... So it was sort of a three-sided box? Yes, three sides. With the four, four side being glass. And cars parked in front of it. And I thought that if that continued, that that... I mean, if if that was allowed in Anchorage, it's going to ruin some of the nice things about Anchorage because it's so horrible looking. And the built environment, of course, is the last thing I think it was anyone's mind at that time. And one of the reasons... Yeah, too bad. I know. <laughs> too bad it led us straight to the current era where there's a lot of that around. Boy, a lot of other stuff that's very ridiculous. But well, I've uh... been up there, Clark, and... I've been out in the yeah. Netherlands, and it's it's like a cancer. These huge, humongous, out of scale wood buildings everywhere. But it was people like Locke Jacobs and Hamilton. They, or at least Hamilton, relished in the office doing these cob jobs, which they were things that they could whip out over a weekend at the office and make a bundle of money. And these were these block buildings. And Cobb, is that an acronym or That's what he called something? them, C-O-B, like corn cobs or something, but he called them Cobb jobs. <laughs> Cobb, okay. Sorry, continue. Oh, that's all right. It, <laughs> it, Cobb rhymes with job, I guess, and, and uh, he just went out there and did that. And They were all commercial, but I watched that in the short time I was there, and Ham... And other people were starting to turn those out because there was such a demand for commercial buildings with uh, the onslaught of people coming up there from uh, or over there from Europe and from the States. Uh, the Anchorage was growing and very, very fast. It was amazing uh, how quick that was. The community was taking on a certain aspect which I don't think was conducive to reflecting its wonderful uh, environment and the geography around it. And of course there was no heed paid to the wonderful sunlight and plains and the way the sun could play on the faces of different buildings and, and letting the sun lick into city blocks and things. None of that was part of anyone's consciousness as Anchorage grew. Yeah, and pe people notice practically every visitor that um, family um, hosted from who came here from out of state and never been here before said something similar in so many words, like, uh, seems like a wonderful natural yes. setting you have here, and uh, too bad about the man-made parts of it. I know. <laughs> well, you know, you were doing um, everything that you could do to, to foment a counter-argument to the prevailing uh, wisdom, so... It's uh, you can't knock it. A certain amount of people will um, be hip to the message, I guess. <laughs> it's that they were all bigger than me. <laughs> they had more power. Yeah. Well, isn't yes. that always the case? You know. <laughs> I need to take a break, and I will be back uh, in about two or three minutes. Sounds good, and we're at, up against the uh, time for the second break, anyhow. So I'll hang tight until you until you return. I can't stop. Sometimes 
describes a trip up Spinard Road from the airport to downtown in early 60s Anchorage. After some side trips, somehow we end up at the Birdhouse Bar. Ralph, in our middle session, you were talking about the Anchorage uh, aristocracy, such as it was. We were talking about the early explosive growth of Anchorage in the 60s and how it wasn't necessarily translating into anything too exciting or memorable. Yeah, that is unfortunately the case uh, for Anchorage. To get back to the aristocracy or the elitai, there was an episode in the spring of 1960 that got national attention. And that was somewhat right at, after the statehood uh, attention that there's a wave that went through the United States that people started looking at Alaska differently. But there was a very experienced and well-known mountain climber named Helga Bading. And there were several parties on Mount McKinley, and she, it was, uh, she was on this in one party in the spring of 1960. They got into trouble, two parties. It was a climbing accident or something. It, Helga was actually started it, I think, because of her had some kind of breathing problem up there at 16,400 feet on the slopes, and it was 30 below zero. And John Day, you may have even heard of him, but he's a wealthy cattleman in, from Oregon, Was uh, had a party up there. Paul Cruz, who's a mechanical engineer, was there, and so was Rodman Wilson, who happened to be the doctor that I first went to uh, when I went to Anchorage. And he became twice a client in later years and a close friend even up to his death. All of these people on the mountainside, there were other people in these parties, of course, but the whole episode had national attention. Bradford Washburn, who I talked about being the foremost uh, uh, authority on Mount McKinley, was involved with it, and so was Don Sheldon, who uh, was a son-in-law, became the son-in-law of Bob Reeves, and had the uh, uh, Bush pilot concession on, in Talkeetna. And Life magazine got a hold of it, and uh, all these people just became, uh, after the survival and the nation's attention of those people and the saga up there on surviving this predicament, and I don't want to get into it because it's too long, but um, it's quite an involved story and uh, had national attention, and uh, several pages in Life magazine, which was a leading magazine at that time in the United States, a uh, pictorial uh, magazine, uh, had all these people featured in it. The thing that happened from that, it also drew people from outside who had a lot of status, uh, who were perhaps famous, uh, outside of Alaska, beyond the aristocracy that uh, brought Alaska's notoriety as far as 
its mining and all of that, but these people had international ties, and they moved to Anchorage. And this kept coming on uh, as kind of splitting these people up there as far as who were the leaders of society, because it <laughs> seemed to have made a schizophrenic aspect of who people like to be with up there. And I'm not sure if there was warring or anything. I was too busy with my life up there to pay a lot of attention to it. But uh, the people who were moving in did not have pioneering Alaska credentials, which was when I first went up there, people always wanted to bring that aspect out, like, uh, uh, how long have you lived here? And blah, blah, blah. What do you do? And how have you been there? And what, what schools you go to? They People always ask those kind of questions, which I never thought were really applicable to how good a human being is. But Rod Wilson was a good human being, and uh, he had friends, and uh, he and Lil Thomas Jr., who moved there with his wife Tay, they were good friends, and all these people seemed to have a clique that was separate from the Atwoods clique. And uh, that was kind of an interesting split when you uh, take a look at what happened in Anchorage later on as, as Anchorage started growing. I just wanted to bring that out as far as how the climbing bug and I call it this outdoorsman attitude that a lot of people who come to Anchorage have, the skiers, and seem to congregate outside or aggregate outside of the existing uh, movers and shakers in Alaska. I don't know if you have any comment on that, but I wanted to bring that in here because it has a lot to do with my future up there as well. I think it's interesting, and we should probably, oh, there's that word again, should probably um, state too that uh, we talked about this briefly offline, but um, you said what you were really trying to do with your book is write a book about architecture, but it ends up being a lot about the people, but they were the people that made the architecture possible. Yes. And so, you know, with that as um, kind of the basis of it, I guess the other thing it makes me think of is that <clears throat> the condition where you have people coming to Anchorage, um, not necessarily to live, but to be here to work on a project or something, that persists to this day. And it makes me think of, um, you know, there's parts of uh, Montana, for example, that have a lot of Hollywood people that end up going up there and buying a ranch, and, and they like it because they can um, maybe ride their horse into town and uh, go down the main street and interact with some people. But um, even though their reputation still precedes them, their interactions with the locals, the, the locals don't really um, make a big deal about their uh, status. And that's different than the reaction that they often get, you know, in California or wherever they spend most of their time. So I see a little bit of that here too. Like, um, or Alaska had a, um, a film office for a while that was, um, doing some incentives to get uh, people to come and film Hollywood movies here. We don't have that any longer. And I think we're one of like maybe only a couple of, uh, states that don't have such an incentive process and it's too bad. But, um, when, um, they were here filming, um, the movie, um, gosh, I can't remember the name of it, but um, Ted Danson was the star. <coughs> I, gosh, I've got, virus, <laughs> I've got a frog in my throat. But um, oh. anyhow, um, my uh, my ex-girlfriend and I at the time when they were filming that movie, I think it was maybe uh, 2012, 2013, something like that. We walked into the bar on the ground floor of the Captain Cook. Um, anyhow, Is the, it called the Kettle? kettle? 
something downstairs? No, it's um. Uh, I'll I'll think of it right when we're done here. But it doesn't. It, okay. It, it doesn't matter. But anyhow, like um. So Ted Danson walks in, and um, we ended up like giving him our seat at the bar because we were just about to leave, and um, people recognized him and stuff, but nobody was like um, you know, fawning over him or making a big deal about his presence. <laughs> it was great. Well, you know, I had an office in Beverly Hills, and. That was just common. Uh, I was right across the street from the breakfast of the Ivy. It later became just the Ivy, but that was a big hot spot in those days. <laughs> and, and it seems like those people were always hanging around out there. And uh, it get, it gets pretty commonplace to bump into uh, celebrities and people just kind of start picking them apart. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was one proprietor there in Beverly Hills. They, if they saw Barbara Streisand coming toward the door, they'd go and shut the blinds and lock the door. They didn't like dealing with her. It was that bad. I don't know what she did to them, but they didn't like dealing with her. Well, there's somebody whose uh, reputation precedes them in a big way. Yes. The thing that I guess what I'm getting into next uh, with this broadcast or podcast is that I got the car and my curiosity about these where the elite I and where the city was growing and who was doing what I just started de- starting exploring Anchorage and seeing what it was all about and I was though I had arrived at the airport out there which is now an international airport but um or the ted stevens airport i guess now but uh when i first arrived it was not very large building and uh but the way into town was quite a meander it it really was like spinard road and it kind of meandered around toward anchorage but uh it had these different places that people held it great esteem at that time. The Idle Hour was a favorite dinner dancing spot, and the Nico Gardens was a wonderful Japanese restaurant uh, on the way into town. Out there somewhere is a Garden of Eden. I don't know if that's still out there. It was on a Quonset hut when I was there, and it was a great place to eat and kind of strange being in a Quonset hut, but it was just considered a great place to go, and it was, truly. There's an Italian restaurant there now, and there's a two-story building that adjoins the Quonset, and the Quonset is still there, and it's not uh, part of the dining area anymore. It's like that's where the kitchen is. Oh, is it? Yeah, but you can still like go around the corner and they have the old um, uh, Garden of Eaton neon sign that's still there. So it's, it's kind of still there. The other two places you mentioned are not still there. <laughs> Nico Gardens burned down. And I think in Jen's Jensen building, we talked about that. Uh, they had it up on one of the floors in that building for some time. I don't know if it thrived or not. But it, I went there uh, and it was not the same as place out on the Seward Highway, and I mean the uh, Spinard Road. Where the original Nico Garden used to be, there's a McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <Gosh>. Yeah. <laughs> that would be quite It's kind of a cold a slap change. in the face. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but as you meandered down, there was just all these kind of just 
cheap little buildings, uh, uh, nothing monumental whatsoever, and come to Northern Lights Boulevard, and of course that to the west was out where uh, Turning It By the Sea was, which people upheld as quite a place to live at that point. And going a little further, and there's Fireweed Lane, you know, and Mama Martha's shish kebab, we talked about that. He, she was the mother of Terry, who owned the, the Hofbrau downtown. But the thing that was right there at that intersection, right on Hillcrest, was uh, Design Craft. And I was going to ask you, is it still there in Anchorage? Or not? Not for quite a while, and uh, yeah, it was it was at a different location, like on uh, Benson and Denali, I think, for yes. most of its uh, existence. But yeah, that was a that was the uh, um, Scandinavian furniture store, right? Danish furniture, Danish dishes, all that stuff, and that was owned by Betty Cruz, which is Paul Cruz's wife, and Martha Murphy, who later uh, committed suicide almost in my presence. I told you about that too. We'll get to that later. But and there was a a favorite place right up there at the top of Roman Hill called the Chicken Broaster, and people love that stuff. And they would go up there and get broaster chicken, and everyone thought that was the biggest treat in Anchorage in those days. Maybe that was one of the locations where there was this ten uh, foot tall chicken that was on the roof of some chicken restaurant somewhere, and it kept like um, moving around, and it would be um, stored for a while, and then it would pop. Back Back up on the roof of another building, it made like a tour of uh, various places in Anchorage. It was fascinating. <laughs> I lived up there later after I married. I lived down in Sunset Hills West. And on the way from town, from my office to my home, out there on the Seward Highway, and I think it's the old Seward Highway, there was an intersection. I can't remember where. There was a geodesic dome that appeared there. And after a while, there was a plastic chicken on top of it. And I don't know whatever happened to it. The very same chicken I was talking about. <laughs> Probably. <Yeah. laughs> and I, I, you remember, maybe you don't aren't into music like I am, but Oklahoma had a song uh, about the pretty little Surrey with a fringe on top. And I made up a song about it's a geodesic dome with a chicken on the top. And I used to entertain people with that. <laughs> After they, they finally took it away and I couldn't, it didn't have any pertinence anymore, but it was fun to have that in my head. I'm imagining that that big chicken is uh, back in some warehouse now, and it'll make another appearance before too many more years. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was also another dorky bird that uh, was, there was a bar, a bird, Bird Creek Inn going down to Alyeska, and it was this, there was like a loft and this paper mache bird with a martini in his hand would stand in it or something. Yeah, the birdhouse, and you know that. Uh, oh, it's um, a birdhouse, yes. It burned down, and uh, it was an old uh, miner's cabin that they figured was built about 1903, and it sunk into the ground a little bit in the 64 earthquake, and after that, they turned it into a bar, and so it had a sunken floor, like one whole wing where the bar was, was down underneath <laughs> the ground, and you walked in, and everything was like, you know, sloping in these weird directions, and it was very small, but um, yeah, the um, they, it burned to the ground in 1996, and with the fire apparatus coming from both Girdwood and Anchorage, and by the time either of them got there, uh, there was nothing left except that papier-mâché bird that you were talking about did survive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was the only thing. The rest of it was totally gone. 
And it was too bad because they were um, they were renovating the building and they figured that, you know, part of the old electrical was still in effect and they were doing upgrades to it uh, at the time. And it, there was some sort of like an electrical spark that started the fire. My curiosity was always so strong anyway. And I went in it a couple of times. It even took people into there so they could see it. But the walls were totally papered with business cards and underwear that people would, I don't know how they got it, but people donated their underwear and it was hanging all over the walls too. So I don't know if that started the fire or not. It, it was both really cool and really unique and kind of uh, totally gross at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, though it little footnote that place lives on and at uh chilkoot charlie's in spinard they built a replica of it about five years after the original burned down and you can go in there and um they uh it, it's pretty convincing it looks a lot like uh, they built it on the back corner of the lot and uh, so you walk through this um crazy bar with multiple different spaces and into it you know it's a lot like uh the original it's very close i remember talking to um somebody who um, she was uh, one of the bartenders at the original location and then she bartended for a while at the replica bar she said that uh, they started building it and of course it, it wasn't documented and they um, they built something and it didn't really look right and they ended up tearing it down and they were kind of um, despairing on what to do and they had photographs of it and stuff she said like uh a guy appeared who was a carpenter and he was like 26 years old and he looked at it and he just, uh, he took charge of the project and he built it and he did like a beautiful job. You know, he got it exactly right. The proportions and the size of the spaces and the... <laughs> well, I will put that on my agenda next time I'm up there to t go take a look at that. And I'll call upon you to take me so I can see it because my wife probably won't go to it. The whole the whole place was just a series of uh, jokes and pranks, you know. It's like they had these stunts that they would pull on people at the bar, and then when you went to the restroom, it was a thing where there was a door handle on one on the hinge side of the door, you know, and like <laughs> these goofy songs on the jukebox. So at every, every turn, there was like something that was like you know trying to trying to make you laugh. There is a place down here after you go into the men's room. I I can't remember how you I haven't been there for a bit but when you start to leave it makes you think you've been in the women's restroom and you, <laughs> everyone takes a pause when they go in there and come out that through that but I love that kind of stuff because I like to laugh yeah it, people forgot to have fun or something right Everybody's somewhere taking, taking I, I've never seen seriously. so many people so serious I've got people so rabid anymore so it, it was such intensity about everything they're not even fun to be around anymore. I can't really know where our life is going I will want to say one other thing before we leave this let me get on one thing because I want to get this in here but on Hillcrest to the east is Roaming Hill and that's where a lot of the houses were where a lot of people with wherewithal lived. But on the other end, which goes by West High School, was a golf course and a country club. And that uh, later on in my book becomes quite a controversy. And I wanted to get that in. And the just to continue from the airport into town, you kind of curve down this dangerous curve that people always had trouble with into um, Westchester 
flats on and somewhere you joined L Street and went on to town. And that's how early Anchorage got down to downtown Anchorage. And it's so different than it is now. It's just amazing when I go there. It's a really cool street and it's one of the few streets in town. There's a couple of others that uh, don't follow a straight north-south-east-west grid. So there's that. I guess it got that way in the first place because the guy, Joe Spinard, who the street and neighborhood are named after, um, was in Anchorage in 1960 and he had one of the few cars at the time and he sort of like blazed that trail along that route that became uh, a Spinard Road later on and he um, cut down trees and built a crude road uh, sort of single-handedly and then he uh, sold the uh, cut down trees as firewood and he built a big dance hall pavilion at Lake Spinard where the seaplane base is now. Yes. And he did all of this uh, on land that he didn't own. <laughs> oh God! No. <laughs> and, and do you know that guy's name? Who did that? Or Joe Spinard, and he he left. Oh, oh well. He left Anchorage about um, I think like it, it maybe in the early thirties, and um, he he had a health condition, and so he moved to uh, California, and he ran a hardware store there, like in Sacramento, I think, until his oh. death. Clark, I never knew that about that. And that road is, is, was a big deal when I first moved to Anchorage. And uh, this is the first history I've heard of it. Yeah, there, you can see um, uh, pictures of that guy like in, uh, in parades in Anchorage in the late teens and early 20s. And he was quite the uh, uh, colorful character. <laughs> Sounds like it. All right. Well, I think we're going to like um, put a cork in this one, our sixth episode already, and um, come back hopefully sooner than a month from now and do another. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I'll talk to you down the road, and thank you once again for the great opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, Santo and Johnny. <laughs> is preparing a book about his 30 years designing in Alaska. His website address is artechdivisions.com. This has been Alley Audio Vision, Episode 6, recorded May 14th, 2020. So long, dear friends.